The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Well, good morning, Parkwood family. It is a great joy and privilege to be with you this morning. As Pastor Jeff mentioned a few weeks ago, Parkwood is uh, where I grew up and uh, where I heard the Bible faithfully taught as a young child, uh, where I was baptized some 13 years ago. And uh, though I have been away for about 10 years now, living in various parts of the country, the Lord has brought us back, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here to serve as a pastoral apprentice and to get further training uh, under Pastor Jeff. And it is a great joy to open God's Word with you this morning, and so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning, and uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can uh, find a chair Bible in front of you, and the text is found on page 976 in the chair Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10, and I would invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have been incredibly gracious to each one of us. Though we were once dead in sin, you have made us alive in Christ. Please open our eyes to behold the wonder and beauty of your truth now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, you can be seated. Well, it's encouraging for us as believers to 
hear various testimonies of the grace of God and one another's lives and how each one comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of us has a unique story, a unique testimony of God's grace, of how we had heard the gospel and were saved by the grace of God. And I want to share with you the testimony of one of my favorite Christian authors, J.C. Ryle. Ryle grew up in England in the 1800s, and while he was studying at the University of Oxford, uh, he attended a local church nearby. He didn't have much of a Christian upbringing, um, and so he wasn't familiar uh, too much with the truths of the Bible. But he went uh, to a local church nearby the University of Oxford, and the lesson that morning was on Ephesians chapter 2. And as he was there at the service, the the teacher read through the text of Ephesians chapter 2, and as he was reading, he got to verse 8, slowed down, and made some emphatic pauses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift God. Well, it was through the very reading of this text of Scripture that J.C. Ryle was convicted of his sin and converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Later, J.C. Ryle wrote to his family of this event, and he said, nothing I can remember to this day appeared to me so clear and distinct is my own sinfulness, Christ's preciousness, the value of the Bible, the need of being born again. Before that time, I was dead in sins and on the high road to hell. From that time, I had become alive and nothing to my mind can account for it but the free, sovereign grace of God. This is the testimony of J.C. Ryle, and though each of us has our own unique testimony of how the Lord was gracious to us in saving us from our sin, we all share in the same story that we were once dead in sin, but have now been made alive together with Christ. So the main idea for our message this morning is that the powerful grace of God in salvation raises hopelessly dead sinners to newness of life in Christ. And I pray that we can celebrate this great truth together this morning as we consider God's word. And I pray also that if you're here this morning and and weighed down with the cares and the burdens and troubles and difficulties of this life, that through the study of God's word this morning that you would be overwhelmed by his grace. Let's consider the word of God together. First, we have to consider our former condition, who we were before Christ saved us. Our dead and powerless condition is described in verses one through three. In these opening verses, the Apostle Paul describes for us our pre-Christian state. He is reminding us of who we were before 
God intervened. And he says, first, you were dead in sin. In a very pointed and direct statement, verse 1 opens, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And there is perhaps no stronger word that the Bible could have used to describe the utter sinfulness of man and his inability to rid himself of that sin. When Paul speaks of trespasses and and sins here, trespasses has the idea of of, uh, a misstep and sins is, is missing the mark. And he's using these two words not to draw a distinction, but rather for emphasis. It tells us that before God intervened, we were all rebels and failures in the eyes of God. The lies of the world try to tell us that man is basically good. But here, we are told of the true spiritual condition of every person apart from the grace of God. This was the realm in which we all existed before Christ saved us. And as a spiritually dead person, you were unable to come to God by your own strength. You were unresponsive to the things of God that is powerless to to truly understand, to truly come to grips with the holiness of God and, and the gravity of your sin. There was once an open air preacher that was on the streets preaching the gospel and a young man interrupted him and said, well preacher you tell us about the burden of sin but I feel none. How much does sin weigh? 80 pounds? It's 10 pounds? The preacher answered, tell me, if I put a 400 pound weight on a dead man, would he feel it? Well, the young man said, well, no, preacher, because he's, he's dead. And the preacher responded to the young man, So it is with all who are dead in sin, unable to feel the weight of it. And that was true of us. We once had no true conviction of the sin in which we once lived. The spiritual death, our our dead and powerless condition is further described in verses 2 to 3. As we're told that we were not only dead in sin, we were also dominated by the world, the devil, and the flesh. Verse 2, you were following the course of this world. That is, you marched to the beat of the world's drum. And the world is not speaking here of God's creation, but but of the world system that is opposed to God, that satanic order that, that hates God and his truth. And in your former walk, you were following after the devil, following after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And the devil is referred to as the prince or the chief of the cosmic powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil that Paul discusses later in Ephesians chapter 6. But this indicates the influence of Satan and, and not so much his authority. The spirit of the devil is now presently at work in the sons of disobedience or lost individuals who, who are characterized by a disobedient life, a life that is lived in rebellion against God. The spirit of Satan is now actively at work amongst them. 
One writer said that these worldly and satanic influences provide a script for living day-to-day life apart from God and his values. Verse 3 goes on to remind us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So not only were we subject to the external influences of the world and the devil, we were also subject to the internal influences and passions of our flesh. We intensely pursued strong desires that opposed God and his ways. And notice that that Paul here switches from the second person plural you to, to the first person plural we. He says that that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, lest there be any distinction. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us, every single one, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And because of this, verse 3 concludes and tells us that we were destined for the wrath. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As much as society wants to claim that everyone is a child of God, that is not the truth according to the scriptures. This is the sobering reminder and the gravity of our sin in the eyes of God that those who have not yet been born again, who have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, are destined for God's wrath. Because of our sinful state and our relentless pursuit of the world, we were subject to the wrath of God. God's wrath is his intense hatred towards all evil and his commitment to justly punish evildoers. Sinners deserve nothing but the holy wrath of God. This is all who were on the broad road to destruction, or as J.C. Ryle said, on the high road to hell. This is who we all were before Christ. This is the bad news of our sin. We were powerless. We were helpless, unable to save ourselves, unresponsive to the things of God, and we must properly understand and come to grips with the bad news before we can rightly praise God for the good news. We must be reminded of of who we were before Christ intervened. We must be reminded of our dead and powerless condition. But aren't you thankful that there's good news? That there's good news? Let's celebrate God's phenomenal intervention in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 begins, but God. And so we were dead and helpless in our sins. And and who is it that, that intervened? Well, it certainly wasn't us. The text does not say, you were dead and helpless in your sins, but but you. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Or you finally got your act together. You finally cleaned up your life and and, and turned yourself around. No. But God, 
You were dead in sin, but, but God intervened. We were all helpless and hopeless, but God took action. These two words, but God, are some of the richest in the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Before Christ, we were dead in sin, but God. We were dominated by the world, the devil, and the flesh, but God. We were destined for wrath, but God. We were lost and doomed, but God sent Christ to die for our sin. And the initiative was not ours, but God's. And this passage highlights for us the the amazing character of God, that he was not motivated by anything lovely in us, for we were but spiritual corpses. But instead, he was motivated by his own character. Consider first the greatness of his, the richness of his mercy. In verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Scripture over and over again declares that God is is merciful. And this attribute of God speaks of of his goodness to those that are in distress. That he he compassionately extends his, his goodness to those who don't deserve it. And he's rich in mercy, overabounding, without measure. We've celebrated this in the past several weeks in considering Psalm 51 and David's cry for mercy and how God was gracious and merciful to him, though he did not deserve it for his great sin. But God is merciful to us in his withholding of the earned punishment for sin, which is death. And aren't you thankful that he is rich in mercy? That there is always abundance and his mercies are new each and every morning. We also see that God was motivated by the greatness of his love. Verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. And God's love can easily be misunderstood and often misrepresented. God's love cannot be separated from his wrath. And we see in this passage that it was not separated in the mind of the Apostle Paul. We see in verse 3 the wrath of God towards sinners. But here in verse 5 we see the love of God demonstrated towards his redeemed. John explains this great love over in 1 John 4.10. Just write the reference down. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thus, the greatness of God's love is displayed towards us and that he sent Christ to absorb the wrath of God in its entirety upon the cross when he hung there on the cross at Calvary and absorbed the entirety of God's wrath against sin. Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins, this is the love of God. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent Christ to redeem us. God's intervention is further described by three incredible actions in the text. And what did God do? What did God do when he intervened and and when he saved us? He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and he seated us with Christ. Let us rejoice as we consider these marvelous truths. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
The greatest need of a spiritually dead sinner is to be made alive in Christ. Man's greatest need is not some form of rehabilitation or a greater education, but his greatest need is regeneration, that is to be born again, to be made alive, to be saved from sin. This is what God has done for us. He has made us alive with Christ. And we have a beautiful illustration, a beautiful picture of this coming to life back in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles back to the book of Ezekiel, and I want to read a portion there for you in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. That's after the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37. And as you're turning there, in this section... This is when the nation of Israel was in Babylonian captivity, and God had announced that his nation was going to be restored to the land, yet it seemed difficult in light of the current circumstances. Israel was dead in the sense that they were deprived of the land. They were out of their land. They they didn't have a king. They didn't have a temple. And so God gave this vision to the prophet Ezekiel, to illustrate and confirm his promise of restoration that he was going to bring them back. So Ezekiel 37, and I want to read verses 1 through 10 for us and think in your mind uh, uh, what we've been discussing of, of moving from death to life. Ezekiel 37 verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, old dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live." So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Friends, you and I, all of us, were once a cemetery of dry bones. But God intervened by his grace and his mercy. And he 
breathed life where we had no life. He took us as spiritual corpses as a valley of dry bones and, and assembled us together and made us alive in Christ. He gave us new life in Christ. Let us rejoice in this truth. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive with Christ. Back to Ephesians 2. The Lord God brought us up from the dead, gave us a spiritual heartbeat for Jesus. He, he made us alive with Christ. That is, we, we were united with Christ. And, and you see this, you've heard it even as we've read Ephesians this morning, this repetition of being in Christ. And here, that, that God made us alive with Christ and raised us with Christ and, and seated with, with Christ. That is, when we, were, when we were saved, we entered into this inseparable union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, this intimate bond that can never be broken, that speaks of, of Christ in us, that our life is hidden with him, and that, that he is in, in us that we are inseparably united with him. And not only are we united with Christ in his death and resurrection, we are also united with Christ in his exaltation. Verse 6 says that, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is astonishing truth. And back in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, he mentions the working of God's great might in Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. Look there, I want to read those verses. This speaks of the power of God, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Christ is seated at the highest position of authority in the universe, and all evil powers are subject to him. Now, in our portion in Ephesians 2, Paul applies these realities to believers. This means that we as believers are no longer under the domination of the world, the devil, and the flesh, that, they, that we have been set free, that there is nothing to fear, that we don't need to fear the devil, we don't need to fear uh, the desires of our own heart, though they deceive us. We have been set free in Christ. We have been united to him. This is the glorious truth of the gospel that we have been made alive in him. And why did God intervene? Why is it that God intervened and displayed his, his miraculous grace to us? Verse 7 answers, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The raising of dead sinners to new life in Christ is first and foremost for the glory of God. He puts his glorious grace and kindness on display to a watching world in the lives of his people. Each one of us who have been made alive in Christ are showcases, displays of his grace for now and forevermore. And where is God's grace chiefly displayed to us? It's in our salvation from sin. So let's look at God's powerful grace and salvation in verses eight and nine. God wants to show us here that his powerful grace is the basis of our salvation from sin. 
Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. His grace is the basis of our salvation from sin. This means that I didn't do anything to earn it, and I didn't do anything to deserve it. Grace, that unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, goodness of God towards those who were once destined for wrath. We are all recipients of his great grace. It is this powerful grace of God that that caused us to be raised to new life from our formerly dead state. And twice in in verses 5 and in verse 8, we're told by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Our salvation is all by God's grace. And we read in verse 7 earlier that God's grace is immeasurably rich towards us. It is overabounding. It, It never runs out. Our sin was great. But his grace is greater. Back in Ephesians 1.8, we're also told that he lavished this grace upon us. He has richly blessed us with his grace of which we are so undeserving. This powerful grace of God raised us to new life in Christ. He saved us from our sin. And consider the great contrast of our passage that we've walked through so far this morning. We can't help but see what uh, verses 1 to 3 have described. This is, this is what sinful man is by nature. This is what man is by nature. Dead in sin. Destined for wrath. Separated from God. No hope. But we also celebrate what the Christian is by grace. Once dead, now alive. By grace you have been saved. Consider also the, the truth of, of our salvation, the remainder of verses 8 and 9, that, that it's an abiding and, and comprehensive reality. You have been saved. The, the verb tense emphasizes not just the past action, but the present ongoing effects of our salvation, of God's saving work in our lives. It, it is more than just forgiveness from sins, though, though it certainly includes that, though it certainly begins there when we, when we came to Christ and we were forgiven from all our sin and cleansed from all our sin. It includes more, though. We, we, uh, it's not only that we have been saved, it's also that we're being saved and that we will be saved. Our, our sanctification and our glorification, it is all wrapped up in, in this word, in, in, in salvation, and the fact that you have been saved. You have been saved from sin. The Bible also tells us that it is through faith. Our salvation is through faith. That is the simple faith of abandoning all attempts to save yourself and casting yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ. The simple belief that Christ is Lord and that there is no other salvation apart from him. That he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. This is the simple faith of the gospel, to believe on Christ, to have faith and be saved. Also, we see it's not by your own doing. And from every possible angle, the point is stressed that our salvation is a gracious work of God, not of man, nothing that we have done. It is God's gift, all of it. It's not some sort of transaction where we supply uh, the faith and God supplies the grace and you mix that together and that's how salvation comes. No, it's all a gift of God. It is all by his grace, our salvation His grace, the faith to believe it, all a gift from God. 
And it's not from works, verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. There's nothing that any of us could ever do to save ourselves. Salvation is not by works, but by grace. And I want you to consider for a moment how foolish one's attempt to gain salvation by works is. There was a headline in the Grand Rapids newspaper entitled, Conversion to the Hindu Faith is Torturous. The article went on to say that a German businessman had completed his conversion to the Hindu faith by piercing himself through the cheeks with a quarter-inch thick, four-foot-long steel rod and pulling a chariot for two miles by ropes attached to his back and to his chest. This is one foolish example of man's attempt to gain salvation by works. And though not all religions may be as outwardly foolish as this, we know that apart from the work, uh, apart from the truth of Christianity, all other religions teach that man is attempting to earn his favor before God, to earn his salvation by works. But that's not Christianity. We are not saved by works, by, by things that, that we do, but by grace, all by the grace of God. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6 says that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He saved us not because of works that we have done, but according to his own mercy. And there is no place for any human boasting in our salvation from sin. It is all a gift of God. It is a marvelous work of his grace. It is God's grace alone that raises dead sinners to newness of life in Christ. And this newness of life that we have been graciously granted by the Lord God Almighty must be accompanied by an appropriate conduct that God has ordained for his people. So let's look lastly at God's prepared works for his new creation. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. The Greek word that we translate workmanship here is poema. And in the New Testament, this word is only used of acts of divine creation. In Romans 1:20, it refers to God's creation of the universe. And here in Ephesians 2:10, it speaks of God's new creation sinners that have been raised to life in Christ. It is his saving and transforming work. And, and what does this word poema sound like? Poem. Poetry is a work of literary art where the poet skillfully seeks to convey 
a message through rhythm and, and through rhyme. And in the same way, each of us are the masterful, poetic workmanship of God that he has skillfully and graciously made us into a new creation. He has chosen to convey his message in and through us by his saving work in our lives. All of us are the unique workmanship of God. He first knit us together in our mother's womb, and then he made us into a new creation in Christ. And as his workmanship, as his new creation, God has prepared good works for us to walk in. But, but let it be heard that we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. Good works are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. Works are not the ground of our salvation, but they are the result of it. They are the evidence of it. And we must, as believers, get this distinction right. A misunderstanding of this point is a misunderstanding of the gospel. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And good works is referring to, a, it's a general and sort of comprehensive term for godly conduct, godly behavior. Later in Ephesians, as Paul exhorts uh, the readers to, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that, that there are various uh, areas of, of godly conduct that he lists. That this, is, this is the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. And what are some other examples of these good works that, that God has prepared for us? Well, certainly not limited to these, but a few examples. Denying yourself and serving your family when you don't want to. Is that a good work that God has prepared for me to walk in? Yes, it is. Denying yourself, giving of your time and resources to, to serve God's people in the local church, uh, sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, working hard at your place of employment for the glory of God. Are these things the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in as his new creation, as his workmanship? Yes, yes it is. This and so much more. You may say, well, I don't know what God has prepared for me specifically, but anything you do in your life for the glory of God are the good works that God has prepared for you to walk in. Be diligent in serving him. And walk, when Paul talks about the walk, this, this is our conduct or our day-to-day -day habits, our, our, our lives. And when you were dead in sin, you walked in the ways of the world. Notice the, the bookends or the inclusio of this passage that we've, we've looked at in Ephesians 2. He says at the beginning that you once walked in the ways of the world. That was our former conduct, the way we used to live, the way we used to conduct our lives, our habits. They were unpleasing to God. But now he says at the end of the passage that God has made you into his workmanship and he's prepared good works for us to walk in. That is, we have a new walk now. God has saved us from the old walk and has given us a new walk, a new conduct to pursue, a new, new character uh, to pursue after so that we can glorify him. You once walked in sin, but now are alive in Christ and are to walk in the works that he has prepared for us. So we come to the final question, how should I respond to the powerful grace of God? Let me say this, that for all of us that are here today, this text divides humanity into two groups, that you are either dead in sin or you're alive in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have not entered into a saving relationship with him, you've heard this miraculous grace described from the word of God, how he's gracious towards sinners. 
you must recognize that apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead, unable to please God, unable to come to him. Respond to God's grace by recognizing your need for it and crying out to him to save you. He is a gracious and kind and compassionate God. And he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. Believe on Christ today if you have not yet surrendered your life and God will welcome you into his arms. And for our brothers and sisters in Christ, what can we do? What else can we do but thank God for his amazing grace, kindness towards us of which we are so undeserving? Praise him for his glorious grace Seek to live faithfully in light of it by walking in the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace of which we are so undeserving. Lord, may your word accomplish your work amongst your people. And may we go this day celebrating the grace that you have bestowed upon us living faithfully in light of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.